Hello, everyone. My name is Tawny Hammond. Welcome to the Profiles and Leadership Podcast. I will be shining a light on big-hearted and brave leadership, making the world a safer, more humane, and kinder place for all species. Leadership exists at all levels and walks of life. There are everyday heroes all around us working to end the killing of companion animals and animal shelters across the nation, as well as protecting wildlife and stopping the degradation of the environment. And I'm going to bring them to you. All you have to do is tune in and come along on this life-saving journey as we learn about profiles and leadership. So grab your walking shoes and your ear pods and let's go. Welcome to Profiles and Leadership. Super excited today to be chatting with my friend and colleague, Dr. Aaron Katribe, who is currently the medical director for Best Friends Animal Society and soon to be the interim medical director at Palm Valley Animal Society. And she's also one of the first graduates of Best Friends Executive Leadership Certification Program. Welcome, Erin. Thanks for having me, Tony. Yeah, thanks for being with me on such short notice. What I'm putting together is some interviews with boots-on-the-ground professionals that have been working through the COVID-19 crisis and how it's affected pets and people and what we're doing in the field to, to not revert to killing animals for space. And as a veterinarian and somebody that has worked um, a lot, you worked in Austin, Texas, and you've been working with other communities collaboratively. You've been working in Kanab, Utah, and you've been doing a lot of work in the Rio Grande area, particularly in Palm Valley. You have some unique um, experiences that I was hoping that you would talk with me about today, uh, particularly when the COVID-19 crisis first broke and we, we kind of saw what was happening and it was coming to our country. Uh, what were your first concerns? So I think myself, like many veterinary and shelter professionals, my biggest initial concern was going to be what, what impact directly this was going to have on pets. Is this a disease that pets can get and can transmit? Knowing that, that if that was the case, the implications would be huge for, for animals everywhere, but particularly pets in shelters and pets that might wind up in shelters. We, we know, and, and the messaging has remained constant, that this is not a disease that pets can contract. So it's great news. Uh, we do know that pets, like inanimate objects, can harbor the virus on on their body, so on like a surface or any you know like a doorknob or or a table, um, but they can't actually contract it. So we do still need to take precautions, uh, but they can't contract it and transmit it in the same way that humans can. And so that that was my first concern, and and thankfully, uh, we know that that is not something that can happen. Oh, thankfully, absolutely. I think um, it's been frustrating too that. There's misinformation on where this even started in the first place that we forget that most likely this came from uh, a wet market in another country and the practice of um, consuming wildlife. And that's been um, really disheartening because sometimes it's illegal what's happening in other countries and it's being done anyways. And if it's not illegal, you know, health experts have warned and known that, you know, eating animals that are eating the feces of animals that carry certain diseases, uh, it was just, you know, kind of a disaster waiting to happen. Absolutely. Uh, it, this is something that we see where viruses do jump from animals to humans. Uh, and frequently it is in these situations, like 
illegal marketing of wildlife and wildlife products and, and that sort of thing. And, and it is really unfortunate. Again, with, with this particular virus, the mutation made it such that it cannot go back to animals, and, and, and which is what is keeping our, our pets safe. Uh, but again, it, it is, it's so unfortunate that, that this happens and this will likely continue to happen as long as that wildlife trade continues. Uh, it, need, it needs to end. And um, it's just really disheartening. I've heard some professionals uh, actually in the medical field, they'll say, oh, this came from bats. No, this came from people eating animals that eat the waste products of bats. And let's just call it what it is and not say this came from an animal, the mutation. So, but enough on that. I wanted to talk with you about um, what practitioners in the field, you know, animal services leadership and people that are working in shelters and field services um, can be doing for to keep themselves safe and to keep the pets in their care safe. And what, what are some recommendations you have? Because even though facilities may be closed for regular operations, they're still serving their communities. Yes, Tony. So one of, one of the biggest areas that, that uh, I'm getting asked about and, and being asked to consult on is really regarding during this, this time when we're being asked to stop all non-essential services, what, how do we define essential and what does that mean? In my world, mm-hmm. one of the big considerations we have is is our spay neuter services, and there are two issues that come up with that. One of them is if we are going to continue providing services, how do we do them in a way that keeps both our staff safe as well as maintains the health of the public? And certainly, many shelters and, and spay neuter clinics have made adjustments to operations to be able to do that. The other concern is it's becoming more and more apparent that we really don't know when this public health crisis is going to end. And many of the the supplies that that we use in veterinary medicine for surgery are the same supplies that are used in human medicine. And what is our ethical obligation to conserve those supplies, knowing that there are already shortages across the country? I can absolutely make the argument that in a shelter environment, that spay-neuter is life-saving and is essential. But then the question comes up that, not knowing how long these shortages are going to happen and, and what this is going to look like for, for the humans. Um, is there a way for us to continue to do our life-saving work, but actually postpone things like spay-neuter? Uh, is it appropriate for us to um, find ways and processes to allow us to postpone that surgery, adopt those animals out intact, which I know is very scary for a lot of us out there and, and goes against what we've said for years, but, but can we do that in a way um, that that maintains our obligation to the health of, of the humans out there, but also allows us to, to you know, maintain our responsibility to the life-saving work that we're doing. Mm. Yeah. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. And that's really good advice uh, for, for us to be cognizant of that. So we're able to continue life-saving um, operations and services for both pets and people. When in animal sheltering, what are you seeing uh, happening like down in Palm Valley, um, the operations down there. Uh, have you talked with Mike Bricker and what's happening down there and measures they're taking? I have. So for Palm Valley specifically, like many shelters across the country, they have limited non-essential intake. So they've reached out to their animal services officers and asked for them to really only bring in those pets that absolutely have to come in. Um, we've reached out to the community to ask the community if, if you can wait on surrendering 
um, please do. Uh, and just transparency with the community and, and ask for help. Uh, the other big push that many shelters are making, uh, as you know, and we've talked about it on the podcast, uh, is the push for foster and to increase foster homes. And Palm Valley, again, like many communities, um, has has responded and they have been able to, to continue foster and adoptions, modifying operations uh, in some ways to decrease that that human to human contact that that is a risk mm. uh, because of the COVID-19 uh, issue but still being able to get animals out and to have life-saving outcomes for them while at the same time decreasing that intake, knowing again, like we don't know how long this is going to continue. Yeah. Um, we don't know how long it's going to continue, but the response to fostering and asking the community for help, it's been amazing, like all over the country, don't you think? It's been absolutely inspiring. And there are so many examples of shelters doing amazing things, reaching out to their community and the community answers. And by and large, people want to help. They want to help their shelters and they want to help the animals. And most of all, they want to help their community, especially in a time of crisis. We just have to reach out and ask. And in so many situations, we've seen examples of shelters trying programming that they were have been previously unable to do but because of the crisis, we're, we're pushed into it and have seen amazing success. And, and if there is a silver lining to all of this, it, it's exploring what the, that programming looks like and continuing these programs after the crisis is over. Um, we're only gonna get stronger because of this and, and through exploring new ideas and, and collaborating in new ways, I think we will get to the other side of this and we'll be able to save more lives than ever. Yeah, you said that really well. That was actually gonna be my next question for you. My next, <laughs> my next question was about a lot of times life-saving practices are not happening in communities or organizations, um, municipalities, even nonprofits, right? And there's bureaucratic red tape and risk aversion. We've been pushed to innovate and, and programs maybe where somebody was dragging their feet and now we had to launch it. We couldn't make excuses or or be so risk averse that we couldn't do it. I kind of feel like this is going to change sheltering um, a lot and animal services a lot when this crisis is over. What are your thoughts? I, I agree. I think definitely for, for some of these communities out there that um, for whatever reason weren't able or, or were too risk averse to try these things, um, it is, it's, it's forcing them to do that. Uh, to to continue to save lives. What's your advice for people out there, um, shelter folks that are feeling alone, that aren't that resourced? There's some animal services departments being run by one or two people and sometimes volunteers. What's your advice for them on continuing to to push the envelope and not just you know curl up and start you know, killing animals for space? What's your advice for people that are struggling and that aren't as resourced as other communities? The most important thing that I can say to that, Tani, is that you are not alone. We are all in this together and we all want to save lives. And while it may feel that you are isolated or don't have resources, um, we live in an age of technology, um, which is a blessing in times of crisis. Even now there are Facebook groups and there are, you know, conference calls that are happening to bring leaders in 
in animal welfare together to be able to brainstorm solutions and to share um, materials and protocols and documents that and, and ideas that have worked for them. And so despite your geographical isolation or what it may feel like on some of those days, nobody out there that's in this is alone. Mm. And, and we have the opportunity to collaborate and work together uh, because it, we are, we are all in this for the same reason. And that's just save the lives of, of pets in our country. Yeah, that's wonderful. What do you, what can you tell veterinarians out there perhaps that have been pretty conservative or kind of wary of the whole no kill movement? Um, and, and I know that we can't change the way people think or their values or their philosophies, but there may be folks that are forced to be innovative, right? And that are forced to maybe embrace things or think about things that before we didn't have to. Do you have any advice for professionals out there regarding, um, I don't know, kind of evolving our mindset and our skills and our practices? Yeah, I can, I can speak to that. Sheltering and the practices that, that we use in sheltering and animal services, it's similar to medicine. They keep evolving and they keep changing and we keep getting better. And sometimes it's the situation that changes. And, and so we have to keep adapting. And, and that is the same in sheltering as it is in medicine. And you know, the way that we did things 10 years ago is not the way that we do things now, um, whether it's a, a new procedure or a new drug or, or a disease is different now than it was then because of different environments and exposures. And so we are forced to keep learning when, when we take on a, a career in veterinary medicine. And so sheltering is no different. And so I, my hope is that veterinarians can see that. Um, I think there is opposition out there to the no-kill movement, but it's, but it's based on misconceptions. You and I know that, that no-kill is more than just a benchmark number. It is a philosophy and it's a community ethic. It's about us as animal sheltering professionals engaging our community in saving lives, just like we are in this crisis uh, that, that we're dealing with now, but, but expanding that and doing that um, in, in our everyday work. Again, we're, we're all in this for the same reason. It's to save those lives. Um, that's why veterinarians get into the profession is because they want to help animals and they care about animals. And what better way to do that than to truly save their lives in the biggest way possible. And that's saving the lives of those animals that are unfortunately losing their lives prematurely in shelters. And we can do something about that. That's a wonderful message. I can't thank you enough for, for sharing that. Is there anything I haven't asked you that you'd like to add? I get one additional thing that I, I would like to mention. Uh, we touched on it briefly, but I know there's a lot of fear out there around this idea of if, if we do, if shelters and spay neuter clinics do decide to, to completely shut down spay neuter services, what does that mean for us having to adopt out animals intact? And I know that's frightening for a lot of people and there's a lot of concern around what this will mean for overpopulation. I, I would like to just comment that, you know, the National Animal Care and Control Association did put out a statement saying, please do not end animals' lives simply because spay-neuter is not an option right now for them. And I just want to reiterate that, that I agree with that so wholeheartedly, that we should not kill those animals simply because we don't have the option to spay and neuter them. We can put processes in place to hopefully ensure that that happens later. And we, we can ask our community to 
to follow through with, with that spay neuter later. And we have to put that trust into them because it absolutely does not make any sense for us to end those lives simply because surgery is not an option right now. And so I just would encourage everybody to, you know, think outside the box, you know, figure out solutions to be able to save lives, even if we can't do things the way that, that we would in an ideal world or the way that we want to. I think it's just so important to, to keep that into context. Um, sheltering is very different now than it was five or 10 years ago. And, and while I, I do understand that, that it's scary to put intact animals out into the world, um, we have to trust in our community to, to be able to take on that responsibility and, and trust in our shelter system um, that we will be able to, to catch up on the other side of this crisis. Oh, that's very well said. And thank you for saying that. I'm really, really glad that you added that. It's important um, for us to understand um, just exactly what you said so eloquently. And thank you today for being with us on Profiles and Leadership and making time, being generous with your time. I know that you had a, a busy week and, and a busy week coming up. And, um, and I thank you. And I'm a phone call away if I could ever help you. You know that. Thank you, Tani, and thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure.